Welcome back to Bible Time. We're in 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse 9. For what thanks can we render to God again for you, for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God? Praise the Lord for this wonderful text. We've got a wonderful book and a wonderful chapter to a wonderful church that God started in a wonderful way. And we're going to give thanks to God and glory to God for that today, even as the Apostle Paul was doing. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we pray that you would open our understanding, open our eyes. Help us, Lord, to be excited about your word. Help us to be full of joy. Help us to be full of praise. Fill our hearts with joy and love, Lord God. And we thank you, Lord God. We worship you, Lord, because you're good and you're worthy of praise praise in Jesus name and for Christ's sake. Amen. Here the apostle Paul says of his evangelistic band for what thanks can we render to God again for you for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before God. All that we do in life, all that we people do in this life is to be for the glory of God. God created man in his image. He made male and female and he gave them a job in the garden of Eden. He told them to keep the land and he would meet with them there to keep the garden and he would meet with them there in the garden in the cool of the day and they would walk with God and they would talk with God and it was all to God's glory and God loved man and God had a plan for man and it was a good plan and then man messed it up. God told him, ye shall not eat of every tree. He says, ye can eat of all the trees of the garden, but of that one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, ye shall not eat thereof. Um, in the day that ye eat thereof, ye, thou shalt surely die. And I'm probably butchering that up. I'm kind of... I'm kind of <coughs> kind of repeating it from memory and kind of just butchering it up there, but you can read that in the start of Genesis where God commissioned man and man felt like he wasn't living. We looked at that yesterday. Now we live if ye stand fast in the Lord. Man felt like he didn't, he wasn't living enough. Eve felt like she just wasn't living enough. Her living room wasn't big enough. Her furniture wasn't exactly like she liked it. She wasn't in the place she wanted to be. She didn't have the clothes that she wanted to wear. <clears throat> That's a joke. No, we've got one, two laughing. Are you finally getting it? In the Garden of Eden, God made them and said that they were naked in the Garden of Eden. But they did not know they were naked because they were in the presence of God and they did not need clothes because God's own glory clothed them. God's righteousness, God's glory clothed them. You say it doesn't say that in Genesis that God's glory clothed them. No, you can go all over the whole rest of the Bible and see what happened when God got around folks. Like when God got around Moses and his face shone so bright that the children of Israel could not even look at his face and they asked for a veil to cover his face so that they wouldn't have to behold the shine, the aftershine of the afterglow of the glory of God that had passed by Moses on Mount Sinai. It wasn't some kind of sensual Rembrandt painting of a couple naked people running around a garden like nudists in a colony. It had nothing to do with the sensual wickedness that we have in our day and our age. 
stage. It was beautiful. It was pure. It was holy. And if you happen to be able to go back in time, which you cannot do, and stand in the Garden of Eden and look on your great-grandparents standing there, you would not even be able to tell that they were naked for the glory of God and the glow of God that would be on them until they sinned. And then they went and hid themselves in the garden. Old Eve thought that life would be better if she could determine what was good and evil. She thought she could decide how to live. She thought she knew what was best. She thought that she could be wise and be as God's. And she chose her way instead of God's way and plunged this earth into death and destruction. It was actually Adam who was the responsible party as Eve gave to her husband who was with her and he did eat. And God did not judge them and their eyes were not opened until Adam ate of the fruit. Boy, we're not even going to preach on that right now. We've got to keep moving. But there, in the very beginning, at the very start, there was this whole, this, whole, this whole concept, this whole idea of you haven't lived yet came in in the garden. Old, the old snake came up to Eve and basically told her, you haven't lived yet. Ye shall not surely die. You haven't yet begun to live. If you really want to live, you take of this fruit and you disobey God and then you'll start to live and Eve obeyed the snake, she disobeyed God, and she died. And, and Adam died. When Adam ate of the fruit, the Bible says, death passed on all men, for they all have sinned. And ever since that, this old wicked world is trying to tack God onto their life. Um, you go back to Cain, and he had a garden there. And in his garden, he had a bunch of fruits and vegetables. Sounds like a lot of modern churches today had a bunch of fruits and vegetables. The fruits who are all crazy and loony and the vegetables who won't do nothing but sit in the pew. They don't even move. Bunch of fruits and vegetables. It wasn't a garden. It wasn't a garden of sheep. It wasn't sheep that came brought. It was his fruits and his vegetables that he brought before God. And we have a bunch of fruit and vegetable churches all over this nation full of fruits and vegetables. And they bring their fruit and their vegetables to God as praise. And he's not happy with it. He's not happy with the disobedience. He's not happy with anything short of the blood of the lamb. And old Abel, he brought the lamb. He brought the lamb and the lamb died. And there was bloodshed and God accepted Abel's sacrifice. But he didn't accept Cain's sacrifice. And Cain was mad because Cain had tried to get the vegan label for his organic fruits and vegetables. He tried to get the sticker that would make him the high profits and get the tag that says approved by the Almighty so that he could sell it in the fresh market, right? So that he could get more gain, so that he could say that God was pleased with him while he was doing his own thing and living his own life. And old Cain, he was trying to go his own way and do his own thing, but he wanted the tag that said, approved by God, with a little shiny cloud on it that he could put on his label. And he tried to tack God onto his life, tried to tack God onto his offerings, onto his sacrifice, and God would have none of it. The world's always trying to do this. What an awkward mess it is. I think of um, down in Haiti where I've gone there, where you'll have a godless drunk running around the streets in a car, uh, and for his taxi service, in order to increase revenues, he'll paint the name Jesus all over his car. 
Everywhere he can paint the name Jesus, he'll paint the name Jesus because more people will ride in his car if it says Jesus all over it than people will if he doesn't because they'll feel safer. Like maybe God will protect his car because it says Jesus on it. And this is the kind of idea that we get in our churches. This is the kind of direction that we go with God, using him like a lucky rabbit's foot, like a good luck charm. There's some people out there that think if you cut off a rabbit's foot and hang it around your neck that bad things won't happen anymore and you'll have a happy life. I think you'll just stink. What about you? Probably get fleas too. (coughs) Some of you are offended already. But the world tries to tack God on. The world tries to add God on. The world tries to to get the good luck charm of God added to their life. And they try to live and then have God on the side. But God teaches us in his word that the reality is exactly the opposite. That we are to die to ourselves, To take up our cross daily. To follow Jesus. He said he that finds his life will lose it. He that loses his life for my sake shall find it and if you will lay yourself down on the altar if you'll lay down your dreams if you'll lay down your hopes if you'll lay down your ideas your self-righteousness your pride your wisdom your intellect if you'll lay everything on the altar consecrate yourself to Jesus Christ believe on the Lord Jesus Christ be saved by the blood of the lamb Jesus Christ the righteous and then follow Jesus Christ the righteous and obey him and become his servant and live for his glory you will find that you begin to live Paul said now we live if ye stand fast in the Lord and then he says he speaks of the joy here in verse 9 for what thanks can we render to God again for you for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God think about Paul there in Athens missing Timothy He'd sent Timothy 300 miles north to Thessalonica. And there he was without Timothy, wondering what was going on in his anguish, his affliction, and his distress that we talked about before. He was surrounded by idols and idolaters. As you can read, you can see him preaching. Think about him. Imagine in your mind Paul preaching on Mars Hill. There's idols everywhere. He's surrounded by idols and by idolaters. That's in Acts chapter 17 that Paul stood up there and preached in verse 22 is the start of that text and you can read it and think about it and meditate on how Paul stood there and said ye men of Athens I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious for as I passed by and beheld I can't even remember exactly how it goes there I said I wasn't going to preach it I'm not but we'll try and at least get a little bit he says for I passed by and beheld your devotion and I found he said I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God whom therefore ye ignorantly worship him declare I unto you and there he stood amongst the Stoics and the Epicureans and all these Greek philosophers this is in the place where Aristotle and Plato and these other men would change the ideas of the world a place of high learning one of the greatest universities in the whole world full of its idols, full of its idolaters, full of nakedness, full of vice and drunkenness, full of immorality, full of robbery, full of theft, full of God-haters, backbiters, malignant, sorcery, wizards. And there was Paul all alone preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he told them all, the times of your ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. And he preached repentance to this crowd. The Bible says, and when they heard of the resurrection of the 
the dead, some mocked, and others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them. Howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed, among the which was Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. By and large, he got mocked. He had a few people go with him. And there he is trying to teach these few people in Athens. We know from Acts that that happened before he sent Timothy. At that point, Timothy and Silvanus were back in Berea, where he'd been run off from the Jews that had chased him out of Thessalonica. And he sent to Paul and to Silvanus and said, get down here to Athens as quick as you can. And they got down there to Athens. But when they could no longer forbear, the Bible says they sent to know the faith of the Thessalonican church. They sent to find out, is our labor in vain or has the tempter by some means found a way to tempt you and made our labor in vain? And they sent Timotheus. And there was Paul in Athens trying to preach, trying to teach, surrounded by godlessness, surrounded by humanism, surrounded by the philosophies of men. And there he is. You can see him awkwardly stretching as he gets up in the morning and he's trying to stretch his permanently disfigured body, broken by stones, broken by rods, broken by waves, broken by watchings, fastings, hunger, cold, and robbers. There he is. And think about him as he sits there at his little bench and tries to write a letter to one of his churches. He tries to um, read his Bible, his parchments that he had there, just a few pages probably that he carried with him mostly of the Old Testament and possibly some copies of some of the accounts of Christ from some of his contemporary apostles, some of the other 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he sits there and tries to read and he gets up and his old weather-beaten hands get a needle and he gets to work trying to make a tent and working away at the fabric. And when he gets a chance to take a break, he steps outside and sees who's outside. He sees a little group of men standing there talking and he walks up to him and says, have you heard about the Lord Jesus Christ? He died on the cross and was buried and rose again the third day. And some mock and some say, we will hear you again on this matter. And the next several hours in the heat of the sun, he sits there beside the road and talks to passerby after passerby after passerby about the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, all the while wondering what's going on with Timothy, what's going on in Thessalonica, what's going on at that little church praying for him, weeping for him in his heart. He gets back into the house and he eats a little bit of lunch and he goes to his prayer place and he kneels his old beaten back down. If you could see it, if you could lift the robe from his back, it would be a mass of scars. You wouldn't even be able to tell it as a human back hardly. You'd say, what is that ugly thing? Crouched down there in the corner and that ugly thing is nothing but the old apostle Paul praying and weeping in broken sobs for the souls at Thessalonica that he was was forced to separate from after three Sabbath days preaching. And then consider as he's down there praying one day in his prayer place as he was accustomed to do and all of a sudden he hears a joyful sound. He hears a quick step. He hears a voice that's familiar. The light comes into his eyes. He starts to raise from his prayer place and he turns around to see the face of his son Timothy, his son in the faith, begotten in the faith. He didn't have a physical son. Timothy 
he was as close as it got. And here came the boy Timothy. He'd sent on a mission that could have cost Timothy his life. And here comes Timothy with the light of the gospel in his eyes and with the joy of the Holy Ghost. And he leaps across the threshold and he says, Paul. And Paul says, my son, Timothy. And they hug and they hold each other. And Paul's weeping and Timothy's weeping. And Paul says, tell me how it is at Thessalonica. Tell me about the believers. Tell me about those that we left behind. And Timothy starts to rattle off stuff so fast Paul can't even keep up because there's this guy and there's that lady and there's this other one unnamed to us. Their names aren't written in the Bible, but their names are in the Lamb's Book of Life. And the Apostle Paul's eyes are on fire and his heart is lifted up in praise. And can you hear him shouting, Hallelujah! From that place where he'd been praying, that place where he'd been weeping, and now he's shouting, Hallelujah to the Lamb! Praise the Almighty God! Bless the Lord! Oh, my soul and all that is within me! Bless His holy name! Hallelujah to the Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world! See His weathered, calloused hands raising heavenward. See the tears streaming down His cheeks as He shouts praises to the Savior. The brethren, remain steadfast! Now we live if ye stand in the Lord. (coughs) Words fail him to describe the joy. Words fail him. He runs out of words to say. He doesn't even know what to say. As he lifts up those weather-beaten, calloused hands to heaven, the words fail him. He describes that moment here in verse 9. For what thanks can we render to God again for you for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God? What thanks, what words, what can we possibly say to express our gratitude to God? (coughs) I can't even say enough. I can't I can't whisper. I can't shout. I can't think of a proper sentence that would rightly express my gratitude to you toward you father. He says, "What thanks can we render to God? This is to God who sent, God who called, God who drew, God who saved, God who provided, God who protected, God who prevented, God who comforted them in all their affliction. It's all about God. From start to finish, it's all about God. Think about how Christ died and was buried and rose again. Imagine how Paul sat there words failing him thinking of the old rugged cross where Jesus Christ bled and died for the sins of all mankind and opened up a way through the veil that is his flesh that all the world might believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved think as he as his mind wandered back about about that old gospel story that he knew so well he'd preached so many times and he thought of Christ who was buried that day and about the disciples that wept and the women that put spices and and embalmed him there in the spices not really an embalming just a wrapping in the spices and they laid him there in the grave and they shut the tomb and the third day an angel came and rolled back the stone and Jesus Christ the righteous rose from the dead and came out of the grave and ascended to the father 
Maybe he thought about those women who fell at his feet when he came back from the Father to speak to his disciples, and they held him by the feet and wept. Maybe he thought about Christ appearing to the disciples. But even more than that, the Apostle Paul would have remembered that during that time, he was the man named Saul. That he was far off from God. That he was an enemy of God. That his own lips had been party to the crucifixion of Christ. And very likely he had been one of those running out from the Pharisees and from the Sanhedrin through the crowd. Inciting the mob to cry crucify him. And that while Jesus Christ was appearing to Thomas and saying Thomas put hither thy hand. Stretch forth thine hand and feel the wounds in my hands. Stretch forth thine hand and put it into my side and be not faithless but believing the the apostle Paul was still yet the infidel Saul and that he was angry against the church and full of hate against the church and that he himself was on his way to a devil's hell far far off (coughs) far off and separated from God I need a drink of water if you'd get me one please And there Saul, Saul was far off from God, but God wasn't done yet. And God gave the apostles the Holy Ghost. And there on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came down. And the Holy Spirit gave power to the church to be his witnesses. And the Holy Spirit of God filled the assembly and they preached the gospel with power. And thousands were added to the church, but still Saul had held back in disbelief. Still Saul was standing against Christ. As Peter and John went to pray and they healed a lame man by the way and there they were taken before the Sanhedrin and threatened and they said we ought to obey God rather than man. The apostle Paul was not yet the apostle Paul. He was the infidel Saul and how could he not give thanks to God as he thought back on these things? How he stood against the church and resisted the church and breathed out threatenings against the church. And then he thought about how Peter was jailed by Herod and finally had to leave Jerusalem. And he went down there and rose Dorcas from the dead. And then he saw a sheet coming down from heaven, knit and held together in the corners full of every unclean beast. And a voice from heaven saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he said, not so. For nothing uncommon or unclean has ever entered my mouth. And how that through that there were that happened three times, and then there were three men that showed up at the door, weren't there? And those three men were Gentiles. And the church at Thessalonica is a Gentile church. And all of these details, all you get lost in the details, don't you? <coughs> like a maze. All these details. Without which there would be no church at Thessalonica. All of these details. And Peter went down. And he went down to the house there. From the house of Simon the Tanner. Down to the house of Cornelius. And he began to preach to them. And the Holy Ghost of God fell on the house of Cornelius. And they heard them speak with tongues. And they baptized them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Like Jesus Christ himself commanded them to do in the Great Commission. And now the Gentiles were part of the church. But old Paul... Old Paul 
was hardly even known as Paul. He'd been saved on that road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. And now he was hunted and hated by the very people that he'd once worked for. And he went down into the wilderness for several years and God raised him up. But all these details, imagine if Paul could tell you the story. Imagine today if Paul could go over the story in detail. It would take weeks for him to tell you. And he would tell you about little details that are left out for sake of brevity that God's going to tell us about in glory. Maybe someday in heaven we'll sit by the Apostle Paul and get the whole lowdown on everything that happened and all of the supernatural interventions that God brought into his life to bring him to the point that the Thessalonican church got the gospel. What thanks can we render to God again? We've told you, God. We've told you thank you. We've praised you. We've shouted hallelujah till we were hoarse and we had nothing left that we could say. And yet, God, you keep on doing miracles. And God, you keep on taking us further. And God, you're always faithful. And every time it looks like we're at the end of our rope and we've hit a dead end and we can't go any further, God, you open up a door. You make a way where there seems to be no way you turn our enemies into friends or you kill them in front of us you change everything in a moment with a word from your mouth you can make the sea calm you can make the wind howl you can make the sky dark you can make the night light God you're God and you're God alone and to you God belongs glory and honor and power and wisdom for all of eternity for you are God alone and there is none beside thee You, God, are the God of salvation. You are the God of redemption. You are the God of grace. You are the God of mercy. You are the God of providence. God had preserved his church again. He'd led Paul through those countless trials, raised up Timothy and Silvanus to help him. He led him to Thessalonica and allowed the grief of separation after only three Sabbath days. But God had preserved his church. And Paul says here, what thanks can we render to God again? He didn't send out a newsletter and say, bless God Almighty. Three weeks I got to preach down at Thessalonica, turned the city on its head, and there's still a church there today because I did it. You don't find anything like that coming out of the mouth of Paul. He says, what thanks can we render to God again? What thanks can we render to God again? We've told him thank you so many times. We don't even know what to do. We're on border of vain repetitions. We don't even know what else to say. How many thousands of times can we say thank you to you, Father? And it's not in vain, but it feels repetitious to us. And we just don't even know what else to say. We don't even know how else to say thank you. We don't even know how to worship you. What thanks can we render to you to you again, Lord God? God. What words can even express our gratitude? God has been faithful. What can we say? How can we express our thanks to God again for you, our joy and our crown? If you look back there in 1 Thessalonians 2.19, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming, for ye are our glory and joy. Love is the basis for true worship. 
the joy that's coming out of the Apostle Paul and the worship that's coming out of the Apostle Paul has been conceived from a heart of love for the brethren. Yesterday we talked about now we live if ye stand fast in the Lord. Help me, Lord, to magnify your name. Help me to exalt you. Help me, Lord God, to preach what you want me to preach. Help me not to get off track. Help me, Lord, to honor and extol your holy name in Jesus' name. For I am an unclean man, a man of unclean lips. Touch me, Lord, with touch my lips with coals of fire. Purge my iniquity and my sin, Lord. I'm unworthy to even speak your praise or to shout hallelujah to your holy name. Help me, Lord, to be right with you and pure. Help me, Lord God, to preach the way you want me to preach. Exalt your son, Jesus Christ, through this message in Jesus' name. And for Christ's sake, amen. And help us, Lord, to love one another with pure hearts fervently in Christ's name. He said, now we live if ye stand fast in the Lord. He said, now we live if ye stand fast in the Lord. You ever wonder why you can't really worship the Lord? You ever want, it seems like it's bottled up. Now I know a lot of you out there, you think you worship the Lord every Sunday. You come in your skin tight britches and you come with your sin and you come with your filth and you watch your dirty TV shows full of fornication and immorality right up to the time you walk out the door. You've even got that filthy TV playing and spewing its garbage in your living room and you don't even shut it off to go to church and walk out the door and go to church and dance around in half naked condition in front of a bunch of people showing how spiritual you are and then go back to your life of cesspool of sin and you call that worship. I'm not talking to that crowd right now. I'm talking to the crowd that loves God in spirit and in truth and tries to worship him, but you feel bottled up. You're trying to follow Jesus. You're trying to do the right thing. You don't always do the right thing, but you're trying to. And when you mess up, you repent and try to get right with God. And you try to worship God, but it seems like there's always distractions. It seems like there's always walls. It seems like something prevents you and stops you and hangs you up so that you can't really cut loose and just worship God with all your heart. Now, some worship is loud and some worship is quiet. Some worship has lots of words and some worship fails of words. Probably the purest worship is the worship that comes from the heart that's run out of words, like Paul's talking about here. What thanks can we render? We've run out of words. But you know, if you pretend like you've run out of words and you haven't even started to use words on God, you're probably fibbing. If you haven't even started to use words to worship God and you just sit there quiet and act like a Zen Buddhist meditating and claim you're worshiping God, you're probably as far off the deep end as those other guys that are out there in their skinny jeans. (coughs) Oh my. Worship of God must be in spirit and in truth. He says, sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. If you, your whole basis, listen to me, your vocabulary for worship must come from the word of God. One of the best ways to worship God is to take the Bible and say it and sing it and shout it and whisper it back to God vocalize it now how many times did david talk about worshiping god with his mouth 
All you people out there with, and all you believe in is silent worship. You've got another kind of worship. There's both. And if you've got one to the exclusion of the other, you are in an extreme situation in a ditch. But in any case, <coughs> love Go to 1 Corinthians 13. Charity, love, is the basis for worship. You wonder, why can't I really cut loose and worship God? And I'm not talking about making a scene. You might make a scene. You might not make a scene. But why can't I really cut loose and worship God? How come I can't just focus on God? I get around the brethren, and I start to feel praise well up in my soul. And as soon as I get a squeak as loud as a mouse out my throat, it all runs away, and it's gone. And I can't shout. I can't sing. I just as soon stand there, so I mumble out the song with everybody else and it's gone it's evaporated what is happening here in first corinthians 13 though i speak with the tongues of men and of angels we're talking today about the worship of fellowship by the way that's the title the worship of fellowship he says here though i speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity i'm become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal you could shout with the voice of a mighty waterfall. You could sing with the sound of Luciferian harps. And if you think that's bad, go read about it. God made Lucifer as an angel of music and he was beautiful and he was glorious until his pride ruined him. But if you could sing as good as and make music as good as Lucifer before he fell from heaven and have not charity... You are you are become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Love, which is charity, is the basis for true worship. Selfless love. Remember, we talked about this yesterday. We talked about a selfless love. Greater love hath no man than this. John 15, I believe 13. But the, that a man lay down his life for his friends. <clears throat> a selfless love that puts everyone else before me. A selfless love that can say, now we live if ye stand fast in the Lord. Love, remember, we studied this, love has no occasion of stumbling in it, according to First um, John chapter 2. He that say, saith he hates, his, he, that he loves his brother, he says there's no occasion of stumbling in him. He won't do anything to stumble his brother. He won't do anything wicked to stumble his brother. And that crowd out there, this praise and worship crowd out they get out there and they try to worship God and you get some guy up there in his little skinny jeans acting like he's making love with his guitar in front of everybody and some drummer up there looking like he's high as a kite and a bunch of ladies up there in their tight britches and halter tops showing their bodies off to the whole crowd while they dance and half the crowd is stumbled and the rest of the crowd is so sensual and so burned out on their lusts and full of pornography and vice and every sin out of hell that they can't even recognize something lustful that's normal so they're not lusting because their consciences are so seared they can't even see anything to lust over but the rest of the crowd is stumbling and you're telling me it's worship and i'm telling you it's an abomination in the sight of almighty god true love is the epitome of worship true love is where worship comes from True love, charity is the basis for worship. 
If you do not have charity, you do not have worship. You're a sounding gong and a tinkling cymbal. And true love lays down its life for its friends. True love, true charity will not cause a brother to stumble. True charity will not let a lost person go by who they have the opportunity and ability to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ without warning them. You say you love God and you get up in your worship service and dance all over the place in front of everybody and then you go to work and you talk about sitcoms and you talk about TV shows and you talk about video games and you talk about deer hunting and you talk about vacation and you talk about everything but the blessed Lamb of God and you won't confess Him before anybody and you don't want anybody at work to really know you're a Christian. You're a hypocrite. You're a liar if that's your condition true love true charity is the basis for true worship he said if you confess me before men I'll confess you before the father but if you will not confess me before men I will not confess you before the father (coughs) you want to really be able to cut loose in worship I've got the anecdote for you fall in love with God and fall in love with people for God God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you love the world enough to give of your time, to give of your resources, to give of your energy, to give of your opportunities, and to take time to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with a lost and dying world? True worship comes from charity. It must stem from a heart that is in love with God and therefore in love with the people that God died to save. I'm not just blowing smoke here today. Look at me. Listen. I'm not just blowing smoke. And when I talk about a sin and it's not your sin, you say, God, have mercy on those. And you start looking for a sin that's keeping you from worshiping God. What is it? If it doesn't apply to you when I talk about a praise and worship service, find something that does. What is it that is blocking your worship? What is it that has stolen your love? What is it that has taken the the first place in your heart instead of God? If you will find it and eliminate it. It'll open the door to true worship of God. (coughs) The Apostle Paul loved God, and he loved God's people, and he worshiped God here and said, What thanks can we render to God again for you? What thanks can we render to God again for you? He said, For joy wherewith... For all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before God. He uses joy as a noun and as a verb in the same sentence. For all the joy, noun, wherewith we joy, verb, we do it. For all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before God. The Bible says the joy of the Lord is your strength. 
The joy of the Lord is your strength. Paul's love for these people caused him distress. It caused him affliction. It caused him anguish. But it opened the gate to worship. And the gate to worship opened the gate to joy. And as Paul worshiped God, the joy of God filled him. And the noun joy that filled him worked itself out into the verb joy where he was now joying. And he was now doing joy. People do speed. Why not do joy instead? People do math. How about some joy? Let's do some joy. Give me a hit of that joy. Well, I'm telling you, it comes from love and love that gives and love that dies and love that lays down itself for the brethren then turns into love that worships and love that gives thanks and love that glorifies God. And that love that glorifies God is then responded to by God by an outpouring of joy. You say, I want to get full of the Holy Ghost and I'm glad you want to get full of the Holy Ghost. But let me tell you something. You get full of the Holy Ghost when you get full of joy. When the joy of God is pouring in you and out you and through you and then all of a sudden you're joying. (coughs) The Bible talks about having joy in the Holy Ghost. We need some old-fashioned joy that comes from old-fashioned fellowship, that comes from old-fashioned love, that comes from old-fashioned self-denial and following Christ and loving Christ more than we love ourselves. (coughs) Excuse me. This is the fountainhead right here of all true worship. We're basically done here. (coughs) This is the fountainhead of all true worship. Love. When you love your brethren, there's no occasion of stumbling in you. You want what's best for them. You don't want to hurt them. Love, there in Corinthians, doth not behave itself unseemly. You think somebody is worshiping God, but they're behaving themselves unseemly. They're acting in a way that is sensual, wicked, pagan. It's not love and it's not worship. Love doth not charity, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Charity doesn't sit there trying to work up some so-called gift so it can take over a service with an exposition or a exhibition of spirituality. Love is thinking no evil. Love is long-suffering. Charity never faileth. Charity endures all things. Charity believes all things. Charity seeketh not her own charity is looking out for the interests of the flock charity doesn't want to draw attention to itself but charity will gladly sacrifice all of its self-worth in order to draw attention to the object of its love Charity doesn't want people to look at itself, but charity does want people to look at the object of its charity. Do you hear me today? This is when the church cuts loose. When the church falls in love with Jesus Christ and with one another, charity does not behave itself unseemly. But the worship service is going to get out of the banks when God's people 
are in love with God and in love with one another and thinking more highly of others than they are themselves and their hearts are overflowing with joy. Look, Jimmy just walked back in today. Look at that. There's Barbara. Look over there. There's Faye. Oh, look at that. There's Johnny. He came today. He made it another week. He stands fast in the Lord. Look at the smile on his face. Hallelujah. Bless God. And the heart starts to overflow and the heart starts to bubble up. And that, listen to me today. We're talking about the worship of fellowship. (coughs) That heart is about to bust loose when it gets in that condition. And ain't nobody going to stop it from worshiping God and giving thanks to God. You say, well, the service will get overtaken. Who cares when it's that kind of worship? By the way, anytime you worship God like this, you'll get like the Apostle Paul said, what thanks can we render? And eventually you'll run out of things to say. And you sit there with your heart lifted up towards God and have nothing left to say as you just revel in the beauty of God. And then the preacher will finally get a chance to get up. How about that? Boy, we could stand some of that today, couldn't we? We could stand some of that in our churches. We could stand some of that in our house uh, houses. I'm telling you today, true worship comes, flows from true love, from true Christian charity. This is the worship of true fellowship, the worship of fellowship that we've talked about today. If you have anything that you need to do business with God about and get right with God about to get the flow going, to get God's mercy and grace and love flowing through your heart again and the joy bubbling up inside of you, then I suggest you do it. I command you, I exhort you, I beseech you to do it in Jesus' name. Father, we thank you for this message. We thank you for the worship of fellowship. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness and all the glory that goes to your name. There's none beside thee. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My heart and my flesh faileth. Yet God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Hallelujah to the Lamb. In Jesus' name, amen.